I'm Hospice News reporter Holly Vossel, welcoming you to another episode of our Elevate podcast. Today, we'll be discussing ways the coronavirus pandemic has shifted change in policy, payment, and regulation around hospice care. I'm joined by Judy Lundperson, who is Vice President for Regulatory and Compliance at the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization and a 40-year veteran of the hospice community. In this role at NHPCO, she provides guidance to hospice providers and state organizations on the complex web of regulatory and compliance requirements to help organizations understand and comply with those rules. Hello, Judy. It's really great to have you with us. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Holly. I'm delighted to be here. Well, again, it's really wonderful to have you. Thanks for joining us. I think our topic around regulatory and compliance impacts in hospice is certainly a great one to discuss with you. I want to get us started right away with a question about, you know, how do you think the pandemic is really shaping regulations around the nation's healthcare system? I mean, particularly when it comes to end of life and serious illness care. Well, I I think the first thing we should say is that, you know, the pandemic has shaped how we provide care. So as we're thinking about telehealth, as we're thinking about what we can do with a audio and visual component to telehealth or what what things we could do with audio only, it's really astounding how much care can be provided that way and how much beneficiaries. I You know, I'm mostly thinking Medicare beneficiaries, but how much beneficiaries are enjoying not having to leave their home, not having to leave the safety or, you know, of their home and uh, be able to still get the health care they need. So I, I think that's probably, for me at least, that's a number one. Good point. Right. Thanks. Mm-hmm. And I think then as we start to look at uh, the pandemic in terms of the stress on the system, I think, you know, we're here, we are in August of 2021 and we are seeing the resurgence of COVID and the Delta variant and all the mm-hmm. the people who are now um, in hospitals again and using the ICU beds and all of that. And, you know, I guess all of us are, are looking at those numbers and with a great deal of sadness. Um, and, right. you know, what do we do about the care that's needed and the beneficiaries and Medicare beneficiaries or people in general can't get the care they need because COVID has taken over the inpatient facilities in so many parts of the country. So, you know, I guess as we're thinking about end-of-life care, as we're thinking about serious illness, you know, thinking very, very carefully about how much can we do at home and how much more can we do at home so so our loved ones don't have to go to the hospital. We can do what we need to get done in caring for them without without a hospital setting. So that's another, I guess, another big piece of this. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that that is definitely an impact that is notable that as more care moves into the home, the telehealth impacts. I appreciate those are really strong points. Thank you. So yeah. how do you think that as we're looking, you know, into the impacts of just the pandemic in the past more than year and a half and then going forward, maybe what do you see is coming down that line that could further shape the regulatory and public policy sphere for hospices? Well, so we, you know, if we think about if we think about the pandemic as kind of one of our starting points, and then we think about a lot of the activity in the hospice scrutiny area, 
both of those things, I think, are sort of colliding with each other, if you will. So we have on the uh, pandemic side, you know, we're looking at telehealth. We're looking at ways that we can provide care uh, creatively. Can we, for those families who are so nervous about a staff member coming into their home, um, can we make sure that they are you know, we can talk to them through the by standing on the front porch or, you know, we, we can be creative about how we provide care to them. But then we also have the sort of nagging worry, I think, on part of on the part of many policymakers that how much telehealth is too much? How mm-hmm. much is telehealth kind of, you know, that's is that the new way of providing care? so that we don't have in-person care as much anymore. So I think that's where the balance is going to be really important, especially mm-hmm. in hospice and in, in, in palliative care as well, but in, in hospice where in-person care is kind of one of the hallmarks of, of hospice care and that interdisciplinary team. So, so I think that's a part of it as we're beginning to think about, you know, looking ahead. We're certainly looking at hospice scrutiny much, much, much more carefully. You know, the Office of the Inspector General and the reports that are continuing to come out from them, as mm-hmm. well as other auditors um, with, with scrutiny, does this very, very significant uh, right. concern there. So, you know, how do we know we, we even reported on fraud cases ourselves, right? And, right. and exactly. then they're, right. Mm-hmm. And we've noticed that on our news line as well. So it, it's no surprise to hear you say these things, but it's, it's good to, I think, explore how they're impacting, you know, the rules around hospice care and, and how providers are going to be, what they're going to be facing. So I think that is our, my next question for you even is also is, you know, how do you see the rules of hospice care shifting around this pandemic? And then maybe what are the largest regulatory related concerns that are on the minds of providers as you see. Well, so I think one of the things we want to think about is kind of what, what is right in front of us today. And that is um, hard enough. Right. Right. So we've got proposed regulations for hospice survey reform and enforcement remedies that the proposed rule, the comments are due tomorrow, um, August 27th. And then we should see toward the end of October, we should see a final rule effective some parts of it will be effective January 1. So it's attached to the uh, calendar year 2022 home health rule. And it's the hospice, the two big hospice provisions. So maybe we should just talk for a minute about what some of the stuff that's in there, because I think it will impact, you know, how hospice care is delivered and how penalties are, are levied for infractions around survey deficiencies. So mm-hmm. Can absolutely unpack that and, and encourage you to go ahead. <laughs> okay, sure. So the first thing is we we saw when we were right after those two 2019 OIG reports, we saw that accrediting organizations were not required to submit their findings for survey deficiencies. That was proprietary information. It was um, what Congress told us is it will take an act of Congress to make that change. And so, yes, indeed, as we were working on what we called the Hospice Act, became part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 and signed by the president back in December of 2020, which laid out for CMS all the things that we needed to see or they needed to, to make sure we started to address with surveys, with surveyor consistency, with surveyor competency, 
and with accrediting organizations that they had to follow the same thing that state agencies who are surveyors did. So that part is big, and we expect to see some changes in surveyor training. All the surveyor training is online, so we're expecting to see some changes in that surveyor training. But we're also looking at surveyor conflict of interest. And if a surveyor feels that they have a conflict in surveying a particular hospice, they should declare it and be exempt from surveying that particular hospice. And, you know, if, at NHBCO, we've had with our membership very robust discussions around what it would look like, what kind of deficient, what kind of survey, surveyor conflict of interest might there be. So just a couple of examples. The surveyor worked for a hospice that was a direct competitor of the hospice that they are surveying. The surveyor had a family member or a close friend who was a patient at the hospice that they are now surveying. Just, and you can like put together lots and lots of different examples. What we are asking CMS to do is to come up with some sort of a code of ethics or attestation that the surveyor would say, if I find that I have a conflict of interest, I will declare it. And I will make sure that I'm not, I'm exempt from surveying that particular hospice. So, you know, that's kind of, that's a very interesting part of the, the uh, proposed rule. You know, we're also looking at enforcement remedies. And before this law and now these proposed regs, CMS had two options. You could either be Medicare certified or you could be on the termination track. So there was nothing in between. And for most other provider types, there is a lot of opportunity in between for the hospice to, for, for other, sorry, for other provider types to have, you know, directed plan of correction or temporary management or civil monetary penalties and that sort of thing. So all of that has come to hospice now, first through the statute and now through these uh, regulations. So couple of things that we're very concerned about is one of the provisions is suspension of or of all or part of payments. And so the suspension of payments is, you know, for, for hospices where 90% of their patients are Medicare patients, put a hospice out of business in a few days. Yeah. So we are making very strong recommendations in, in our um, reach out to CMS about you know, suspension of payments for just for new admissions and only for situations of immediate jeopardy. So, you know, there's a lot of activity around the enforcement area. There will be penalties if you're, if a hospice finds themselves in a condition level deficiency or a substantiated complaint circumstance. But I think those are things that are going to be really important to have alternatives for CMS, for the surveyor, for the accrediting organization, so that we're not saying you're either in you're either Medicare certified or you're terminated from the program. So, right. you know, it's going to be I, I a think, huge implementation effort for sure. Mm-hmm. And definitely, I think those are great concerns to, to highlight. It can impact their finances, their operations, and this, their ability to, you know, operate in general, like, as you mentioned. So I, I appreciate you having those points and giving that background to it. And I want to touch base on some of the more recent legislation and regulatory moves kind of happening. What we've noticed is uh, recent legislation that's making moves to establish a community-based palliative care benefit. And we're seeing with growing support from hospice providers and stakeholders alike. So what would a benefit like that do for hospice providers in terms of, you know, how they do business 
and maybe how they provide care or services? Well, I think what we've got is a hospice benefit for patients who are at the end of life. So six months or less if the disease runs its normal course is kind of the eligibility criteria. But we know, and we certainly know a lot more from the pandemic, that if we know anything, we know that our families and patients who are seriously ill have a real gap in services um, before they need hospice, but after they have a diagnosis of a serious illness. And we know also that pandemic or not, these patients want to be able to provide, be provided care in the home setting. So, you know, a lot of our conversations with CMMI, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, are based on the huge success of the Medicare Care Choices model, the demonstration project the hospices uh, participated in and found enormous savings by being able to be there with patients and families before their hospice election and keep them at home, out of the hospital, and provided with support and services. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think the chances are, the chances look good for um, establishing some sort of a community-based palliative care demonstration project. It's probably not a benefit yet, but certainly there's a lot of interest in kind of moving forward on a demonstration project. Mm-hmm. And it would be interesting to see that impact on, you know, length of stay and uh, right. patient census and operations, right? All of those trickle-down kind of impacts of a benefit like that. Right, um, absolutely. So I wanted to touch base also on just around the value-based programs and, and that evolving landscape. What do you see happening in the realm of quality metrics as providers shore up their value propositions for these value-based payment programs? Well, I think we should probably start with what's new in the hospice quality reporting program. So we have the hospice care. Yeah, Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) We have the hospice care index, so 10 indicators which a hospice can look and see how well they're doing, and you get a score of one for every one of the indicators where you meet the metric. It is, you know, I'll just give you a couple, three examples just so we have it as a jumping off point, for instance. If you provided a single day of continuous home care or continuous home care or general inpatient care, then your score is one. If you didn't provide anything besides routine home care, then your, your score is zero. Your goal with the metrics is to be able to have a score of 10. So a score of one for every metric. So every time you don't meet the metric, then you have a, you know, you have some challenge there. But another one would be gaps in nursing visits greater than seven days. So if you have a patient and you say, you know, I'm going to, if the plan of care says the nurse will visit every Tuesday and the patient says, I have a doctor's appointment on Tuesday, so could you come on Wednesday? Well, you know, that might mean that you've met that um, more than exceeding seven days between visits. So, but the metric is for you get a one, you get a score of one. If your hospice score for gaps in skilled nursing visits uh, greater than seven days is below the 90th percentile ranking among hospices nationally. So that's a, you know, another, you know, kind of, you have some wiggle room. You don't have to absolutely make sure that every single patient has that seven days or less for uh, criteria. But this is something to pay a lot of attention to is, is how we are kind of trying to see if we can make changes for how hospice care gets delivered. 
One of my big ones, and one of the things I think we should also be really uh, tuned into is skilled nursing minutes on the weekend. A lot of work has been done, a lot of research has been done on how little care is provided to patients, nursing care has, is provided to patients on the weekend. And I can't tell you how many providers have, have said to me, we, our nurses do a tuck-in call on Friday night, and then we pick up again on Monday morning. And, you know, if you are CMS, if you are a policymaker, if you're somebody who's questioning how hospice care gets provided, the question is, well, but I thought hospice was a 24-7 benefit. So mm-hmm. if my family is coming for the weekend and they really want to talk to the nurse, then I need the nurse to be there. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I want us to kind of think about our kind of changing our philosophy, change our thinking a little bit, and make sure that some nurses nursing can be provided on the weekends. It is a, you know, it is a very challenging time to be um, focused on nursing minutes on the weekends when we barely have enough nurses yeah. um, employed to do the work in general. So, yeah. you know, the workforce issue is definitely another one to unpack. For sure. Absolutely. But, it's um, probably a whole different podcast. You know? A whole other podcast. Yes, it is. Right. <laughs> but I do appreciate your, your points in I wanted to circle back to one that we were mentioning earlier about the impacts of telehealth utilization and balancing that kind of um, hands-on care with virtual care and, you know, even having that potentially impact that workforce too. But in terms of some of that flexibility and others, what kind of efforts are in motion that would make, you know, this telehealth utilization permanent as well as some of the other flexibilities that CMS has introduced as a result of the pandemic is, there any movement or motion that you can kind of see happening? Sure. So let's start with the hospice face-to-face encounter. So when the CARES Act was passed back in March of 20, March, I think of 2020, there was a provision in the CARES Act that said a hospice face-to-face encounter could be done by telehealth um, through the end of the pandemic. There, the telehealth requirement for face-to-face is audio and visual. So it can't be just an audio, and, it's, and that's been clarified a number of times by CMS over the last year or so. And part of the mm-hmm. reason for that is that it's an assessment. It's an assessment for continued eligibility for the hospice right. benefit. So right. um, you really can't do that without laying eyes on the patient. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a group of providers last week and said, okay, so we have this telehealth requirement, and it has to be audio and visual, and you you all are in rural areas, how are you handling this? Because part of our argument when we go and talk to CMS or when we go and talk to the Hill, we say we're talking about Medicare beneficiaries, older, older Americans who might have a landline, don't have a smartphone, don't have a computer, mm-hmm. don't have a way to get a computer. What do we do? And so, you know, so it's, so it's very interesting to kind of hear what they're arrangement was. The the first thing I said was, we have the hospice medical director or the hospice physician in our office. Um, The nurse goes to the home. The nurse takes out her her either tablet or cell phone, and they do FaceTime or they do some other, you know, HIPAA-compliant connection with with the hospice physician, and they meet the requirements. So it's not that the family or the patient has to have the equipment. The hospice could have the equipment, but mm-hmm. it also meets that 
the hospice nurse in particular in this in most of these cases um, has to be on site. Mm-hmm. But you know it's certainly better than the hospice physician who's very um, time is very limited to do that work. So right. you know I think this is a place to be creative. So then we've got a couple of pieces of legislation that NHBCO is supporting to allow the hospice face-to-face encounter to be done through audio and visual permanently. Um, Those Mm -hmm. pieces of legislation are in the Congress. We don't really know whether they'll pass or not, but there's a lot of interest. So it's a part of a much bigger bundle of telehealth services. So um, that that will be how the face-to-face encounter gets made permanent is through legislation. And then, you right. know, you know we, then we have the, the waivers that are part of the hospice wage index rule. Two, two of the hospice waivers were made permanent. Both of these are aid services waivers, one of them where a hospice can use a pseudo patient. It could be a mannequin. It could be a simulation. It could be something besides the patient, him or herself, that would help in the evaluation of hospice aid competency. And then the mm-hmm. second one is that a hospice could identify a deficient skill and, rela- and skills related to that and just evaluate the deficient skill rather than completing another full competency evaluation. Those two waivers were made permanent. So the other public health emergency waivers will expire when the public health emergency is over. Whatever that will be. Whatever right? that is. Um, right? Exactly. So. so that's, you know, a lot yet to be seen and we will continue to navigate <laughs> the a lot of these issues in our own coverage as well as keep an eye on the ball of those those pieces of legislature. So I think the the really last question I have to kind of wrap up this in a bigger picture is what can hospices do to prepare as healthcare regulation and the pandemic continue <laughs> to like evolve their and impact their operations and their finances and all these elements of doing business. You know, it's, uh, Holly, it's a really important question. You know, and I, I guess one I, too. I, I, yeah, a tough one. Yeah. For sure. I think for me, I and those of your listeners who know me know that I will go to data first. Um, mm-hmm. So if you are looking for ways that you can survive and thrive, then you're going to be looking at your data to say, what can I do more of? What can I do differently? How can I present myself to new and different partners in my community or in my state? How can I present myself as being helpful? Mm-hmm. So, you know, certainly in the pandemic, and I, I was talking to a, a hospital state director last week, and she's like, in our state, the State Department of Health is begging hospices to care for patients with COVID who are not, who don't need to be in ICU any longer and there are no beds anywhere, but could the hospice take them home and care for them? Okay. So mm-hmm. is that something that a hospice is able to do? And I think, you know, that's, that's just one very small example. I think another example is as you are preparing for some of the value-based care, as you're preparing for some contract discussions or services discussions with managed care organizations, what's in it for them? And the, one of the big ones is, how can you prove that you can keep my enrollees out of the hospital? So that reduced hospitalizations, the preventing unwanted or unnecessary hospitalizations is a key metric for them. Now, we might say, I don't know how to get there from here. 
But I think mm-hmm. one of the things we have to do is to say, I've got to figure out how I can present that kind of information in a in a way that would make, for instance, a managed care organization really, really want to uh, contract with me. Mm-hmm. And then finally, yeah, yeah and, I, and I think we have to be thinking about how can I do palliative care before there's a lot of money for it? Mm-hmm. How can I make sure that I am creating a business line outside of hospice for seriously ill patients and their families, seriously ill, supportive care, the full interdisciplinary team, um, and care, you know, it's that the right care at the right time kind of approach. So mm-hmm. um, those those three are all things that kind of come to mind as, as I'm thinking about kind of how the future looks. Right. And I think those are really three good streams of thought to really end our conversation on today. And, you know, I, we really hope that listeners have gained further insight around the hospice and regulatory and compliance landscape with our discussion today. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective, Judy. It really was a pleasure to have you with us on this episode of Elevate. I'm delighted to be with you today. All right. Well, thank you also to everyone tuning in. We hope you take care for now and stay tuned for more from Hospice News.